Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. NBC University Theater, bringing you a full-hour dramatization of Charlotte Bronte's classic novel, Jane Eyre, starring Miss Deborah Carr, the intermission commentator. We bring you today a story that broke with tradition, a story that changed the course of the English novel by presenting a hero who was devoid of gallantry and a heroine whose face was of less concern than her mind. Jane Eyre, the essentially autobiographical novel which established Charlotte Bronte as a writer of major stature. And to play the title role in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, we bring you one of England's most accomplished actresses, Miss Deborah Carr. After long pondering, the answer came to me. To obtain a situation as governess, I must advertise in the Herald. If it seems strange that such an obvious solution was difficult for me, please remember I was barely 18. And up to this time, my orphaned existence had been uniquely sheltered and insignificant. The first ten years spent as an ill-favored dependent among relations by marriage, the following eight as pupil and then teacher at Lowood School, a charitable institution. Scarcely a life that prepared one for the ways of the world. I accepted the first answer I received from a Mrs. Fairfax at Thornfield Hall near Milcott. Within a fortnight, all my possessions were corded in one small trunk, and I set out on my journey full of youthful anticipation. When I reached Thornfield, I found Mrs. Fairfax an extremely kind and gracious woman. Let me give you another cup of tea, Miss Eyre. I'm afraid you've had a tedious ride. Thank you, Mrs. Fairfax. Perhaps you'd like to come closer to the fire. It's a chilly night. I'm quite comfortable, thank you. Will you have another of these little sandwiches, my dear? No, thank you. And how do you like Thornfield? Very much, what I've seen of it. Yes, it's a fine old hall. Though I fear it'll be getting out of order unless Mr. Rochester should take it into his head to come and reside here permanently. Mr. Rochester? Who is he? Why, the owner of Thornfield. Didn't you know he was called Edward Rochester? Indeed, I thought Thornfield belonged to you. From your letter, I... To me? <laughs> Bless you, Miss Eyre. What an idea. I'm only the housekeeper. And the little girl, my pupil? She's Mr. Rochester's ward, the daughter of a friend of his, now dead. He commissioned me to find a governess for her. And now, my dear, if you've finished your tea, I'll take you to your room. I'm sure you must be tired after such a long journey. 
there were many more questions I should like to have asked at this point, but Mrs. Fairfax didn't seem disposed to further discussion. The following day, she took me with her on a tour of the hall. Going up onto the leads now. Will you come and see the view from there? Thank you. I'd like to. Mind your footing, my dear. This stairway is very narrow. Now, through this trapdoor, we'll be on the roof. Oh, oh! What a lovely sight. Yes. The fields and woods are beautiful. Are there any legends attached to Thornfield, Mrs. Fairfax? Any ghost stories? I believe not. Well, Miss Eyre, if you've quite feasted your eyes, we'll return below. My, how dark the passage is after the bright sun. You go ahead while I fasten the door. Very well. What a dreary corridor. One has to... that laugh? Who is it? Some of the servants, very likely. Perhaps Grace Poole. But did you hear it? Yes, plainly. I often hear her. She sews in one of these rooms off the corridor. Sometimes Leah the maid is with her. They're frequently noisy together. Grace? Grace? Yes, sir. Too much noise, Grace. Remember directions. Yes, sir. She's a person we have to sew and assist Leah in her housemaid's work. Objectionable in some points, but she does well enough. By the by, Miss Eyre, how did you get on with your new pupil this morning? My surroundings and associates were pleasant at Thornfield. October, November and December passed away. Then, one January afternoon, I offered to post a letter at Hay for Mrs. Fairfax, grateful for the freedom of a two-hour walk. Halfway on my journey, I sat down on a stile to rest for a time and lost myself in thought. My reverie was broken by the appearance of a man on horseback. A dog ran by his side. As they came close to me, the horse shied suddenly, slipped on the ice, and threw his rider to the ground. What the deuce to do now? Well, the infernal blasted... Are you injured, sir? Blasted ice under his lanes. A man... Can I do anything, sir? You can just stand to one side while I get on my feet. Oh. Oh. Down, pilot, down, I say. If you are hurt and want help, sir, I can fetch someone either from Thornfield Hall or from Hay. Thank you, I shall do. I have no broken bones, only a sprain. I, oh. I cannot oh. think of leaving you, sir, at so late an hour in this solitary lane till I see you are fit to mount your horse. Where do you come from? From just below. I will run over to Hay for you with you pleasure. You live just below? Do you mean that house with the battlements? Yes, sir. Whose house is it? Mr. Rochester's. Do you know Mr. Rochester? No, I have never seen him. Hmm. You're not a servant at the hall, of course. I am the governess. The governess? Oh. Yes, of course, the governess. Well, I cannot commission you to fetch help, but necessity compels me to make you useful. 
If I may lean on your shoulder a moment so that I can mount my horse. Now just hand me my whip. Here you are, sir. Thank you. Now make haste with the letter to Hay. Return as fast as you can. Jane Eyre, Miss Fairfax. Come in, my dear. Oh, you're just in time for tea. Did you have a nice walk? Oh, yes. Uh... Mrs. Fairfax? Yes? That dog, where did it come from? Pilot? He came with the master. With whom? The master, Mr. Rochester. He arrived quite unexpectedly just a short time ago. He had an accident. Indeed? Yes, his horse threw him and his ankle sprained. Did this happen in Hay Lane? Just there. Why, well, you must have heard the servants speaking of it after all, my dear. I was summoned to Mr. Rochester's presence for tea the following evening, and I recognized my traveler at once. But in the candlelight, I was able to scan his appearance more carefully. He was of middle height and had a dark face with stern features and a heavy brow. He was not a young man, being near 40, and he certainly was not handsome. He took no notice of us as we entered. Here is Miss Eyre, sir. Let Miss Eyre be seated. I do hope your sprain is paining you less today, Mr. Rochester. You've been very patient. Madam, I should like some tea. Oh. Yes, sir. Will you hand me Mr. Rochester's cup, Miss Eyre? Certainly. Thank you. Don't move back to the shadows, Miss Eyre. Stay near the fire. Yes, sir. You have been resident in my house three months. Yes, sir. And you came from... From Lowood School, I know it, a charitable institution. How long were we there? Eight years. Eight years? You must be tenacious of life. I thought half the time in such a place would have done up any constitution. Who are your parents? I have none. You must have some sort of kinsfolk? No, none. Who recommended you to come here? I advertised, and Mrs. Fairfax answered my advertisement. Yes. And Miss Eyre has been an invaluable companion to me and a kind and careful teacher to Adele. Don't trouble yourself to give her a character. Eulogisms will not bias me. I shall judge for myself. For a week, my only encounter with Mr. Rochester was a chance meeting in the hall or on the stairs. At times, he would pass me haughtily and coldly, and on other occasions, bow and smile graciously. And then, one evening, I was again summoned to the drawing room. For a time, Mr. Rochester sat quietly gazing at the fire. I, in turn, took the opportunity to study him. You examine me, Miss Eyre. Do you find me handsome? No, sir. Mm-hmm. By my word, there is something singular about you. Sir... I was too outspoken, I beg your pardon. I ought to have replied that it is not easy to give an impromptu answer about appearance that tastes different. You ought to have replied no such thing. Go on, observe and criticize. Do you find any hope for me? Uh, 
I... You seem puzzled, Miss Eyre. And though you are not pretty any more than I am handsome, yet a puzzled air becomes you. I am disposed to be gregarious and communicative tonight. It would please me now to draw you out, to learn more of you. Therefore, speak. Speak. What about, sir? Whatever you like. You are dumb, Miss Eyre. Or perhaps stubborn and annoyed. Yes, I think I see a trace of annoyance. I am willing to talk, sir, but how can I introduce a topic when I don't know what will please you? Ask me questions and I will do my best to answer them. Well, then, in the first place, do you agree with me that I have a right to be a little masterful and abrupt sometimes on the grounds that I am old enough to be your father and have battled through varied experiences with many men? Do as you please, sir. That is no answer. I don't think, sir, you have the right to command me merely because you are older than I or because you have seen more of the world than I have. Your claim to superiority depends on the use you have made of your time and experience. Yes, you're right, and I know it. There have been many faults and misdeeds in my past experience. I might have been different. I might have been as good as you. Nature meant me to be, on the whole, a good man, Miss Eyre. And you see, I am not. Oh, sir, You I... would say you don't see it. At least I flatter myself I read such in your eyes. Well, take my word for it. I am not a villain. It seems to me that if you tried, you would in time find it possible to become what you yourself would approve. Justly said, Miss Eyre, and at this moment, I am paving perdition with energy. Sir? I am laying down good intentions, which I believe durable as flint. Certainly my associates and pursuits it shall be other than they have been. And better? Much better. I know what my aim is and what my motives are. And at this moment I pass a law unalterable as that of the Medes and Persians that both are right. The human and fallible should not assume a power with which only the divine and perfect can be safely entrusted. What power? That of saying of any unsanctioned line of action, let it be right. Let it be right. The very words, and you have pronounced them. May it be right, then. During the following few weeks, Mr. Rochester treated me with uniform cordiality. He called me to his presence on several occasions, and his ease of manner and friendly frankness drew me to him. I must admit I no longer pined for a glimpse of the world beyond Thornfield. But I grieved for his grief, whatever it was, and would have given much to relieve it. These thoughts were in my mind as I extinguished my candle and lay down in bed one night. I could not sleep. A disturbing question kept arising in my mind. Would this grief cause Mr. Rochester to leave Thornfield soon again, as Mrs. Fairfax had predicted? The hall clock struck two. And soon after, another sound reached my ears. <laughs> Is someone there? Is someone there? Was that Grace Poole, I wondered? I dressed quickly to go in search of Mrs. Fairfax. As I entered the hall, I found the air dim and filled with smoke. And then I saw a door ajar with clouds of smoke rushing from it. It was Mr. Rochester's room. 
Mr. Rochester. Wake up, wake up, sir. Mr. Rochester. Is there a flood? No, sir, but there has been a fire. I just put it out with your water pitcher. Do get up, sir. You're drenched. Is that Jane Eyre? Have you plotted to drown me? Somebody has plotted something. Uh, Please light me a candle. Here you are, sir. Now, let us see. Confounded, what a blackened mess. What happened? I wouldn't know, sir, but I was dozing when I heard a strange, quite unnatural laugh, which seemed just outside my door, and then running footsteps. I was going for Mrs. Fairfax when I smelt the smoke and then saw it came from your room. Did you see anything when you opened your chamber door? No, sir. But you heard an odd laugh. Have you heard that laugh before, or something like it? Yes, sir. There is a woman who sews here called Grace Poole. She laughs in that way. She is a singular person. Yes, just so. Grace Poole, you have guessed it. She is, as you say, very singular. Well, uh, say nothing about tonight's incident. I will make an excuse for this state of affairs. Good night, then, sir. What? Are you quitting me already? And in that way? I thought you were dismissing me, sir. Well, at least shake hands. You have saved my life, Jane. I have pleasure in knowing you so immense a debt as my life. Nothing else that has been would have been tolerable to me as creditor for such an obligation. But you, I feel your benefits no burden. Good night, my cherished preserver. I regained my couch, but never thought of sleep. I was tossed on a buoyant but unquiet sea where billows of troubles rolled under surges of joy. I feared, yet wished to see Mr. Rochester on the following day. But by tea time, I still had had no glimpse of him. It's fair tonight. Mr. Rochester's had a favorable day for his journey. Journey? Has Mr. Rochester gone anywhere? I didn't know he was out. Oh, he set off the moment he'd had breakfast. He's gone to Mr. Eshton's place, ten miles on the other side of Millcut. I believe there's quite a party assembled there. Do you expect him back tonight? Goodness, no. I should think he's very likely to stay a week or more. Gentlemen, especially, are in request on such occasions. Are there ladies there? There are Mrs. Eshton and her three daughters. Very elegant young ladies, indeed. And there are Blanche and Mary Ingram. This Blanche Ingram will certainly be the queen of the group. What is she like? Tall and graceful, with dark hair and very fair skin. A dazzling beauty, by all accounts. I suppose she is greatly admired. Yes, indeed. And not only for her beauty, but for her accomplishments as well. She's quite a talented... But you eat nothing, Miss Eyre. You've scarcely tasted since you began tea. I'm too thirsty to eat. Will you let me have another cup? When Mr. Rochester had been absent a fortnight, the post brought a letter to Mrs. Fairfax. It's from the master. Perhaps he will proceed to London from the Ashtons. No. He's returning to Thornfield? Indeed, and he sends directions for all the best bedrooms to be prepared. 
All the fine people at the Eshtons are coming with him. My, we shall be busy enough now for a while. These were merry times at Thornfield Hall. I had never seen such a gathering of finely dressed ladies and gentlemen. And Miss Ingram was, I had to admit, indeed a beauty. Mr. Rochester insisted that I appear in the drawing room every evening, but I always sat alone in a distant window seat, unnoticed by everyone, including my master. His attentions were all for Blanche Ingram. On the fifth day of the festivities, Mr. Rochester was called to town on business. When he returned, I met him in the hall. Are you aware, sir, that a stranger has arrived here since you left this morning? Stranger? No. Who can it be? His name is Mason, sir. Richard Mason. And he says he comes from the West Indies. Mason? West Indies? Oh, Mason. Do you feel ill, sir? Jane, I've... I've had a blow. I've had a blow, Jane. Oh, lean on me, sir. Sit down, sir. Yes. Sit beside me, my little friend. Yes, sir. Oh, my little friend, I wish I were on a quiet island with only you. And trouble and danger and hideous recollections removed from me. Can I help, sir? I'd give my life to help you. If all these people came and spat at me, what would you do, Jane? Turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. But if they all sneered at me and left me one by one, would you go too? I rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure in staying with you. To comfort me? Yes, sir. To comfort you as well as I could. And if they laid you under a ban for adhering to me? I should care nothing about it. Then you could dare censure for my sake. I could dare it for the sake of any friend who deserved my adherence, as I am sure you do. Thank you, Jane. Go fetch Mason quietly now and bring him to me in the library. And then... The next I saw of Mr. Mason was late in the evening. Mr. Rochester was showing him to his chamber in an affable, hospitable manner. I decided his fears had been for nothing. At about two o'clock, a knock on my door awakened me. It was Mr. Rochester who bid me dress quickly and come out with a sponge and smelling salts. narrow stairway. Yes, sir. Just give me your hand. This door here. Over to this bed, Jane. Hold the candle. Mr. Mason. Hold this water basin for me. Am I... Am I in immediate danger? No, no. Bear up. You'll be away from here by morning. I'm going to fetch a doctor for you now myself. Oh. Jane. Sir. I shall have to leave you here with this man for an hour or so, but do not speak to him on any pretext. And Richard, it will be at the peril of your life if you speak to her. I'll leave you now. Now, Carter, 
I give you but half an hour to dress his wound and get the patient out of here. Now come, set to work. She's done for me, I fear. The flesh on this shoulder is torn as well as cut. Have there been teeth here? She bit me. She went for me like a tigress. Oh, it was frightful. Be silent, Richard. Oh, hurry, Carter, hurry! Carter will keep you at his home till you're ready to travel, Richard. You'll be all right. Uh, the fresh air revives Yes, me. of course. Goodbye, Richard. Edward. Well, what is it? Let her be taken care of. Let her be treated as tenderly as may be. Let her... I do my best and have done it and will do it. It would to God there were an end of all this. Yes, sir. Look at the sunrise with me. It gives a placid, balmy atmosphere, does it not? It's very lovely, sir. You were past a strange night, Jane. Yes, sir. Put it out of your thoughts. You are my little friend, are you not? I like to serve you, sir. Precisely, I see you do. I see genuine contentment in your gait and mane, your eyes and face when you are helping me and pleasing me. Yes, sir. Little friend... You have noticed my tender penchant for Miss Ingram, I'm sure. Don't you think if I married her, she would regenerate me with a vengeance? That... that is for you to say, sir. Jane, you're quite pale with your vigils. Do you curse me for disturbing your rest? Curse you? Not at all, sir. Shake hands in confirmation. What? What cold fingers. They were warmer last night when I touched them at the door of the mysterious chamber. Jane, when will you watch with me again? Whenever I can be useful, sir. For instance, the night before I am married, will you promise to sit up with me and bear me company? To you I can talk of my lovely one, for you have seen her. Oh, she's a rare one, is she not, Jane? Yes, sir. A beauty, a real beauty. Now, oh, here come some of my guests. You'd better go in the house through the shrubbery. From Hollywood, the NBC University Theater is bringing you Miss Deborah Carr in a radio version of the Charlotte Bronte novel, Jane Eyre. This play is part of a series devoted to the classic novels of Anglo-American literature. If you're interested in supplementing your enjoyment of these productions with home study under college supervision, be sure to listen to the announcement at the close of this program. And now, our intermission commentator, the eminent novelist, Mr. James Hilton. Jane Eyre, one of the great novels of all time, was published in London just over a century ago in the year 1847 and under the deliberately unrevealing pseudonym of Curra Bell. Even the publishers didn't then know anything about this Curra Bell. The novel received what we should nowadays call a mixed press. A magazine called The Economist was prepared to praise it if the author were a man, but called it odious if it were the work of a woman. And the August Quarterly Review suggested 
that it might have been written by a woman, quote, who had forfeited the society of her sex, unquote. To us who reread the novel today, such criticisms, though absurd, nevertheless do indicate the book's importance as a signpost in social and literary history. It was the first great novel that emancipated woman emotionally by portraying her not merely as the passive recipient of man's favor, but as the possessor of rightful and independent passion of which she need not be ashamed. This was a shocking idea to the Victorians, and the battle so joined went on till the present century when H.G. Wells may be said to have fired the last shot with his Anne Veronica. Today, victory being generally conceded, the subject is not sensationally interesting unless infused with genius. And what makes Jane Eyre still an immensely readable novel is that it has this genius to an astonishing degree. Its self-revelation of a pure and passionate woman, highly intelligent and superbly honest, has not been bettered anywhere by anybody. Jane Eyre also broke new ground by describing its heroine as plain and by making the plainness attractive. And it offered a new kind of hero in Edward Rochester, the sardonic, world-weary, somewhat sinful male who, from then till his latest appearance as Fret Butler in Gone with the Wind, has never ceased to create bestsellers. Not till almost a year after the publication of Jane Eyre was it revealed that Carabelle was actually a 30-year-old woman named Charlotte Bronte who lived a confined and lonely life in a parsonage on the Yorkshire moorland. Born of a large family, all her years had been threaded with the patterns of distress and privation. Poor health, ailing sisters, and ne'er-do-well brother, her parson father going blind. She herself had trained to be a governess, and during a spell in Brussels learning French, she had developed a romantic attachment for her married professor. Nothing, of course, came or could come of such a thing, except through the strange alchemy of genius, stories that are now imperishably a part of the world's literature, which tempts one to the Freudian reflection, supposing Charlotte Bronte had been granted the freedoms and advantages of the modern girl. Would fulfillment have ripened genius as fruitfully as frustration did. Jane Eyre was actually begun in dingy lodgings in Manchester, to which city Charlotte took her father for an operation for cataract. It was finished in the bleak parsonage where another Bronte girl and an even wilder genius had just written another novel, Wuthering Heights. Never in history, it is safe to say, have two pens scratched away in the same house and often in the same room with such effect upon the world. Jane Eyre became an immediate success with the public, and it is easy for the modern reader to see why. To begin with, it is a good story with all the popular ingredients, melodrama, romance, and a happy ending. But what gave it life is what gave it birth, a quality of passionate imagination which could make a shy spinster governess the equal in her own mind and by her own showing of a Sappho or a Cleopatra. Thank you, Mr. James Hilton. Our radio version of Jane Eyre, starring Deborah Carr as Jane, will continue from Hollywood after a brief pause for station identification.
soon became an accepted fact among the staff at Thornfield that Mr. Rochester would marry Blanche Ingram. He even purchased a fine new carriage for his future wife's pleasure. And I, I found within myself a newborn agony. Having learned to love my master, it was impossible to unlearn that love. did not see you, sir. Do you think you are the only person who enjoys this arbor on a rich June night? <laughs> Sit down, Jane. Sit down and talk with me. Yes, sir. Thornfield is a pleasant place in summer, isn't it, Jane? It is, sir. You must have become somewhat attached to the place. I am attached to it indeed. And you would be sorry to leave it? Yes. Hmm, pity. It's always a way of events in this life. No sooner have you got settled in a pleasant resting place than you have to move on. Must I move on, sir? Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must. I'm sorry, but I believe indeed you must. Then you are going to be married, sir? Exactly. Soon, sir? Within a month. Adele must go to school and you, Miss Eyre, must get a new situation. I will advertise immediately. I have already, through my future mother-in-law, heard of a place I think will suit you. It is to undertake the education of the five daughters of Mrs. Dionysius O'Gall of Butternut Lodge, Connaught, Ireland. You'll like Ireland, I think. They're such a warm-hearted people there, they say. It's a long way off, sir. No matter. A girl of your sense will not object to the voyage. Not the voyage, but the distance. And then the sea is a barrier. From what, Jane? From England and from Thornfield and... Well? From you, sir. Uh-huh. You'll soon forget me. That I never should, sir. You know I... You're sad, Jane. Is it because you are sorry to leave? I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love Thornfield. I love it because I filled a... lived a full and delightful life here. I, I have talked face to face with an original, a vigorous and expanded mind. I have known you, Mr. Rochester, and it strikes terror in me to feel I absolutely must be torn from you forever. It's like looking on the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? Where? You, sir, have placed it before me. In what shape? In the shape of Miss Ingram, your bride. My bride? What bride? I have no bride. But you will have... Yes, I will, I will. Then I must go. You have said it yourself. No. You must stay, I swear it. I tell you, I must go. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, I am soulless and heartless? Oh, you are wrong. I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. And if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. I'm not speaking now through the medium of custom or conventionalities. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal as we are. As we are. Jane, come here. Don't pull away, Jane. Let me go. I am a free, independent And you being. will decide your own destiny. I offer you my hand, my heart, and a share of all my possessions. You 
play a farce which I merely laugh I at. ask you to pass through life at my side, to be my second self and best earthly companion. I summon you as my wife. It is only you I intend to marry. Marry? Jane, will you marry me? Do you doubt me? Entirely. Little skeptic, you shall be convinced. What love have I for Miss Ingram? None. What love has she for me? None. Why, I caused a rumor to reach her that my fortune was not a third of what was supposed. And after that, I presented myself to see the result. It was coldness, both from her and her mother. But you told me earlier you would marry her. I'll confess, though I may make you a little indignant... I feigned courtship of Miss Ingram only because I wished to render you as madly in love with me as I was with you. I knew jealousy was my best ally. I would not, I could not marry Miss Ingram. But you, you strange, you almost unearthly thing. I love as my own flesh. Not, not me. You, Jane. I must have you for my own, entirely my own. Will you be mine? Are you in earnest? Do you truly love me? Do you sincerely love me? I do, I do, I swear it. Then I will marry you, sir. My darling Jane, make my happiness. I will make yours. God pardon me, and man meddle not with me. I have her and will hold her. month of courtship, full of present joy and future dreams, had passed. My trunks were locked and corded. Looking back at me from my mirror was a white-robed figure I could scarcely recognize. I could almost venture to call myself pretty. The wedding was to be quiet and simple at the little church just beyond Thornfield's gates. As we entered, I noticed the chapel was deserted except for the priest in his white surplice standing at the low altar, the clerk beside him, and two strangers, their backs to us at the rear of the church, viewing the vaults of previous Rochesters. The service began. I require and charge you both as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, that if either of you know any impediment, why ye may not lawfully join together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. Wilt thou, Edward Rochester, have this woman for thy wedded wife? A marriage cannot go on. I declare the existence of an impediment. <gasps> proceed with a ceremony. I cannot proceed without some investigation into what has been asserted and its truth or falsehood. I am in a condition to prove there is an insuperable impediment to this marriage. What is the nature of the impediment? Perhaps it may be overcome or explained away. Hardly. Mr. Rochester has a wife now living. Stay near me, Jane. Who are you? My name is Briggs, a lawyer of London. And you would thrust on me a wife? I would remind you of your lady's existence, sir. Favor me with an account of her? Certainly. I have the information here. Edward Rochester of Thornfield Hall, Milcott, England, was married to Bertha Mason in Spanish Town, Jamaica, on the 20th of October. Spare us the rest of your legal document. It may prove I have been married, 
But it does not prove that the woman mentioned therein as my wife is still living. I have a witness to the fact, whose testimony even you, sir, will scarcely contradict. Produce him or go to the devil. I shall produce him. Mr. Mason, have the goodness to step forward. Mason, you were supposed to have left. Mr. Mason, are you aware whether or not this gentleman's wife is still living? Courage, speak out. She is now living at Thornfield Hall. I saw her last April. I'm her brother. At Thornfield Hall? Impossible. I never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at Thornfield Hall. No, by heaven. I took care that none should hear of it. Mr. Wood, close your book and take off your surplice. There'll be no wedding today. I have been married. Yes, I dare say you've heard gossip about the mysterious lunatic at Thornfield. I now inform you that she is my wife, Bertha Mason, whom I married 15 years ago. Bertha Mason is mad. She came of a mad family, maniacs through three generations, as I found out afterwards. My father and brother arranged the marriage. I invite you all to come up to the house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. place, Mason. She bit and stabbed you here. Good morning, Mrs. Poole. How are you in your charge today? We're tolerable, sir, I thank you. Rather snappish, but not rageous. <gasps> yes, you shudder at the mere sight of her, but she's quiet just now. Ah, sir, she sees you. You'd better not stay. Only a few moments, please. Take care, then, sir. Take care. Keep out of the way, everyone. He has no knife now, I suppose. One never knows what she has, sir. She's so cunning. We, we, we'd better leave Go her. to the devil. Be careful. Watch out for mine. Now, hand me that rope, Mrs. Poole, so I can tie her arms. She's safe now. This gentleman is my wife. And this is what I wish to have. This young girl who stands so grave and quiet. Compare the two. Judge me, priest of the gospel and man of the law. And remember, as you judge, so shall you be judged. better, sir. I shall be all right. Taste the wine again, Jane. Jane. Please. You won't kiss the husband of Bertha Mason, is that it? Mr. Rochester, I must leave you. I must begin a new existence. You don't love me, then? I do love you more than ever. Then you shall be my wife. I am not married. We'll go to a place I have in the south of France, a whitewashed villa on the shores of the Mediterranean. Your wife is living. If I lived with you as you desire, I should then be your mistress. Oh, Jane, Jane, this is bitter. This is wicked. 
It would not be wicked to love me. It would be to obey you. Jane, all happiness will be torn away with you. What then is left? What shall I do, Jane? Where turn for a companion and hope? Do as I do. Trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven. Hope to meet there. And you will not yield. I cannot. Never, never was anything at once so frail and so indomitable. Oh, Jane, come with me. Oh, come, Jane. I must go, sir. Oh, Jane. My hope, my love, my life. it would have given me to have yielded, and what inward agony it brought to turn my back on all I held dear in the world. I slipped away the following morning before daybreak, not trusting myself to a final parting, and taking nothing with me but the clothes and bonnet I wore. miles from Thornfield, I was befriended by the Rivers family, two sisters and their brother, a minister, who secured for me a position as teacher in a village school. But the spirit and purpose had gone from my life. I felt only half a being. If it had not been for this need of a guiding focus in my existence, I should never have even considered St. John Rivers' proposal to me. Lovely the fields look today, St. John. Yes. I shall keep this scene in memory to relive many times. You are sure you're doing the right thing? Is a missionary's life what you really want? I gave my vow to God, Jane. I should never retract it. I leave in six weeks for India. God will protect you. Yes, there is my glory and joy. It seems strange to me that all do not burn to enlist under the same banner. All have not your powers. It would be folly for the weak to wish to march with the strong. I address only such as are worthy and competent of the work. If they are really qualified for the task, will not their own hearts be the first to inform them? And what does your heart say, Jane? My heart is mute. Mute. Then I must speak for it. Jane, come with me to India. Come as my helpmate and fellow oh, neighbor. Oh, St. John, no. Say I... yes, Jane. Give me, give me until tonight to think it over, St. John. Very willingly. I shall pray for strength for you. Well, Jane? I am ready to go to India, if I may go free. Free? You have hitherto been my adopted brother. Let us continue that way. We should not marry. Adopted fraternity would not do... Our union must be consecrated and sealed by marriage. I... Could I, you decide now? I could decide if I were but certain, convinced that it is God's will... My prayers I... are answered. I can convince you. Jane! Jane! Oh! Yes? Oh, yes, what is it? What's wrong, Jane? What did you hear? Jane, I need you. I need you, Jane. Oh, where are you? Where? Jane, what is this nonsense? Did you not hear him? Hear whom? What? 
There's been no sound but our talking. Jane! Jane! Yes, yes, I'm coming. Wait for me. I'm coming, I'm coming. Do you think I was a victim of self-delusion, a dreamer to have answered that call? I tell you, I heard it plainly. It called from the air and from my heart. I left the next morning before daybreak. For the two days of my journey, the stately picture of Thornfield Hall rose in my mind's eye. And then I reached the spot and faced a blackened ruin. The lawn, the grounds were trodden and waste. No roof, no battlements, no chimney. All had crashed in. I hastened to the George Arms at Milcote. There I could get information. I ordered breakfast and was served by the innkeeper himself. Your breakfast all right, ma'am? Yes, thank you. Tell me, you know Thornfield Hall, of course? Yes, ma'am. I was the late Mr. Rochester's butler. The late Mr. Rochester? I mean, the present gentleman, Mr. Edward's father. Oh. Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield now? Oh, no, ma'am. I suppose you're a stranger in these parts. Thornfield Hall burnt down last harvest time, most a year ago. Was it known how it originated? They guessed, ma'am. They guessed... You're perhaps not aware, ma'am, that there was a lady, a lunatic, kept in the house. I have heard something of it. Was it suspected this lunatic had any hand in it? You hit it, ma'am. You see, she was really Mr. Rochester's wife. And on the night, she slipped away from the woman who guards her and set fire to the room that had been the governess's. Was Mr. Rochester at home when the fire broke out? Yes, indeed. And he helped the servants out of the burning house. And then, what would you think, ma'am? Please, go on. He saw his mad wife on the roof, waving her arms and shouting. And would you believe it? Mr. Rochester went back into that inferno and climbed to the battlements to rescue her. He approached her, and then, ma'am, she yelled, give a spring, and the next minute she lay smashed on the pavement. Oh, good Lord. Man, it was frightful. And afterwards, were any other lives lost? No, though it might have been better that way. What do you mean? Poor Mr. Edward. Some say it was a judgment on him. Please, please tell me what happened. He's stone blind. As he came down the great staircase after trying to save Mrs. Rochester, there was a crash. A beam had fallen on him in such a way that one eye was put out. And one hand so crushed that Mr. Carter, the surgeon, had to amputate it directly. He lost the sight of the other eye, too. He's now helpless indeed, blind and a cripple. Where is he? Do you know? At Ferndean, a manor house on the farm he has about 30 miles off. And only old John and his wife are with him. Have you any sort of conveyance? We have a chaise, ma'am, a very handsome... Have it gotten ready immediately. I want to get to Ferndean before dark this very day. it's you, miss, come to this lonely place at such a late hour? It is I indeed, Mary. Where is your master? He's in the parlour, miss. 
Were you going to bring that tray into him? Yes, miss, a glass of water he asked for. Give me the tray. I will carry it in. If you say so, miss. You'd better open the door for me, Mary. My hands are not too steady. Certainly. Down, pilot. Down. Give me water, Mary. What is the matter? Down, pilot. This is you, Mary, is it not? Mary is in the kitchen. Who is this? Who is this? Will you have a little more water, sir? I spilt half of what was in the glass. Who speaks? Answer me. Speak again. Pilot knows me. And John and Mary know I'm here. I came only this evening. What delusion has come over me? What sweet madness has seized me? No delusion. No madness, sir. Where is the speaker? Here is my hand, sir. Her very fingers. Her small, slight fingers. Is it Jane? Is she here? She is all here. Her heart, too. Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. I have come back to you, my dear master. My living darling. Oh, no, no, it is a dream. Such dreams as I have had at night when I clasped her once more to my heart and felt that she loved me and would never leave me. Which I shall never do from this day on. And you would bear with my infirmities, Jane. Overlook my deficiencies. I love you better now when I can really be useful to you than I did in your state of proud independence. If I ever did a good deed in my life, if I ever thought a good thought, prayed a sincere prayer, or wished a righteous wish, I am rewarded now. To be your wife is, for me, to be as happy as I can be on earth. Truly, Jane. Most truly, Edward. Oh, my darling. My darling. been married ten years now. I know what it is to live entirely for and with what I love best on earth. I hold myself supremely blessed. Two years after our marriage, my husband regained a portion of his sight. And when his firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own brilliant eyes as they once were. With a full heart, he acknowledged again that God had tempered judgment with mercy. been listening to Jane Eyre, an NBC University Theater production of the Charlotte Bronte novel starring Deborah Carr as Jane. Next week at this same time, we will bring you another classic of Anglo-American literature, Moby Dick by Herman Melville. The present semester of the NBC University Theater is devoted to the classics of Anglo-American literature from the time of Henry Fielding to that of Henry James. 
If you wish, you may learn more about these authors and their works by enrolling in the college-supervised courses now being offered in connection with the NBC University Theater. The University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, Washington State College, and Kansas State Teachers College have now completed their plans for offering such a course in the coming months. Thus, joining the University of Louisville, whose established home study plan is already serving listeners in another area of the nation. For information, then, as to how you may enhance your knowledge through these courses, write to the NBC University Theater, in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington State College, Pullman, Washington, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Let me repeat that. For information as to how you may enhance your knowledge through these courses, write to the NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington State College, Pullman, Washington, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. was adapted for radio by Agnes Eckhart. Our intermission commentator was Mr. James Hilton. Starred as Jane Eyre was Miss Deborah Carr, who appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor picture Little Women, starring June Allison, Peter Lawford, and Margaret O'Brien. Whitfield Connor was heard as Rochester. Our cast included Norma Varden as Mrs. Fairfax, Phyllis Morris as Bertha, Doris Lloyd was Grace Poole, Carl Harbert was St. John, Harry Martin was Mr. Briggs, Eric Snowden was the innkeeper, Earl Keane the animal impressions. Your announcer, Don Stanley. The original music score was composed and conducted by Dr. Albert Harris. The director of the NBC University Theater is Andrew C. Love. Next week, be with us again for the NBC University Theater dramatization of the Herman Melville novel, Moby Dick. Starring Henry Hull. Today's presentation of Jane Eyre by the NBC University Theater came to you from Hollywood's Radio City. Boy, oh boy. Why so happy, Lewis? Our show's tonight, Martin, on NBC. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.